Welcome to In the Thick of It, Cotton Lottie's weekly podcast with myself, Colin Lambert, um, actually in New York. And with me in New York is Galen Starts, P&L's uh, editor. I thought we'd start off this week, Galen, with a bit of feedback from last week's podcast. Um, I have to say, way too many of my friends fell for the welcome to the last ever crack at the start of it. <laughs> clearly, they don't, clearly they don't listen all the way through, but more seriously. A couple of uh, comments around the brief discussion we had around algos and um, you mentioned that you know we'd had someone saying they're going to see clients and these clients are, are, are building algos that deliberately lose money for the first 30 seconds to mask their business it's quite interesting because there's a few people out there i mean my comments about allowing an algo to go against the parent order definitely got a few a few people um tweaking their their antennas but more interestingly um, some people in banks, I mean, two or three people in banks have come back to me saying, that's not an algo that I could touch with a barge pole. Because it seems, you know, and it's, I guess it's probably um, a, a question of, you know, is this a deliberate attempt to fake out the market? Um, or is it actually just, you know, something, I mean, personally, I think it's fairly prudent. But, um, yeah, I mean, they're looking at it, well, that could be... Um, deceptive behavior what do you think i think it's tricky because i think here's an example of right where potentially best execution could collide with regulatory requirements um i suspect i suspected to answer that better i'd probably have to study the exact wording of, of the definition of spoofing um as given by the regulators um mm. i i agree that that certainly I can understand why banks would be nervous touching an algo like that. Um, yeah. It's hard to say without kind of looking more specifically about how mm. the the algo works. And, and when you say, you know, when we talk about um, deliberately losing money, is it just kind of deliberately not performing well? Or is it actually placing in, you know, orders that it, it thinks are going to actually move or manipulate the market? Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult one. As you say, you've got to define it. I mean, is it just a case that, you know, they're saying, well, actually, we're going to trade a lot slower in the first 30 seconds and then accelerate into the order, um, so we don't want to signal risk? Well, that's fine. And your point about best execution is a good one because, you know, you know one person's disruptive trading is another person's best execution. Right. You could argue, I mean, 20 plus, you know, 20 plus years ago, um, one of the companies I worked for, our best execution policy was basically call up 15 LPs in 30 million and hit them all. Now, what I would stress is that we made sure that the LPs knew that it wasn't full. There was none of this, oh, you know, pricing 30 million, you, I'm only asking you to 15 people and spam them all. So there was no sort of deception involved. But clearly, a lot of the LPs got hurt by the business. Um, but that was our policy, and that's what we had to do. Whether we thought it was right or wrong, it's neither here nor there. That's what our policy was. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a tricky one around these things, and the clients are saying, well, what I want to do is kind of shield my business. Now, you could argue that actually, if they think they need to shield their business, maybe they're not executing their business properly anyway. Um, and it's another manifestation of the clients having to take on market risk which is not something they've had to deal with before. Typically before, give it to the LP, LP manages the, manages out the risk, having given you a fair price. Now most banks, I mean, it was really interesting, I was speaking to a couple of bankers this week, 
Um, maybe in last week. It's all, it all rolls into one beating when you're on the road. Um, but I was talking to a couple of bankers, and they were saying it's actually quite surprising how low the biggest ticket their trading desk had quoted for in the last three or four years, as in it wasn't over a hundred million. Everything over a hundred million was going to like to an algo or an at best order. The trading yeah. desk were not required to actually quote a price. Um, and it was, yeah, which I guess is, you know, we're pushing risk to the buy side. And now the buy side are saying they're, one of their methods of um, dealing with that risk is to say, well, if I can deceive the market or dupe the market into not picking up on my order, which is, which is you know, sensible um, risk management, then uh, my market risk is maybe reduced. But By the way, I do think there's some moral questions there. Talking about um, best execution here, it's kind of slightly off topic, but kind of also within this this theme. Um, there was a wonderful uh, anecdote that we published this week on, on one story about CTAs, talking about um, about a wonderfully low tech piece of uh, best execution, talking about trading euro dollar on the Globex terminal back in the day, and one of these funds was talking about how to do a time weighted execution. They had an egg timer on their desk. And so they'd, they'd, they'd dial it up, and every 10 minutes when the egg timer ding, they'd execute again <laughs> and push through. <laughs> that is, uh, yeah. Old Some friends of mine have got, a, uh, have got a duck egg timer, and it quacks and leans forward every time the time's up. So they can actually place it in the right position. So as it goes forward to peck, it actually pecks the button. That's a fully automated, <laughs> that's a fully automated egg timing execution. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> The other interesting piece of feedback I got was on our discussion around liquidity hub in Singapore. Um, a couple of people got in touch to say, you know, they kind of actually agreed with what we were saying that um, it's going to take a long time for it to really get up and running, particularly because, you know, these people are saying they don't see EBS moving from TY3 soon, anytime soon. And, you know, what liquidity is there that's going to go to Singapore? Um, you know, is it worth the money? I kind of disagree with that viewpoint because I think, you know, we've been told before by EBS and it's on the record that before in, in Asia, their number one currency pair is, CN, is CNH. It's actually not dolly yen. So if you've got the CNH flow going to SG, uh, SG1, then you could argue that actually that would be, you know, worth it for itself. Um, but I think the point was without the um, primary markets and with the primary markets embroiled in takeovers, I mean, it was mentioned on the panel that Refinitiv has got to deal with um, you know, integration into LSE. Um, yeah. EBS is dealing with integration into CME. So it's probably a long way down their list. Another thing was pointed out to me by someone else was um, just they sort of said, look at the numbers around um, the London hubs. So London, obviously the biggest foreign exchange market in the world, does more than double the volume of New York. And I've taken a quick look at the numbers. Um, if you look at um, CBOE or Hotspot, let's pick out a day. I'll pick out November the 7th. It looks quite a busy day. New York volume 31.4 billion. London volume 7.4 billion. Now the other one that publishes this data is Euronext. 7th of November, New York 13 yards, London six and a half, uh, six and a half yards, and Asia 500, Asia 500 million. So the biggest foreign exchange market in the world can't get 
people trading on, on the London hub. They're still trading on the New York hub. So how does that leave the chances for Singapore? I thought it was an interesting point. Yeah, I mean, one thing I said that Singapore definitely has in its favour is uh, that MAS is, seems to be, from what I hear, anecdotally at least, pushing this quite hard and willing to provide a yeah. lot of support. Yeah. Um, not saying authorities in London haven't been supportive, but I suspect that they haven't been as hands-on in trying to yeah. actively encourage and, and push people in that direction. Um, yeah. I also think, I don't know, I don't know to whether you could count this as a trend or not, but certainly the latest BIS numbers show that in percentage terms, uh, both the you know yen trading and the amount of trading taking place in Tokyo did decline, not massively, yeah. but like noticeably. Um, and, and you wonder if the amount of volume that's traded there is is kind of very much tied into how much yen trading happens. Um, and, and thus, we, you know, we could still see it not take Tokyo's place, but emerge as kind of like a, a fourth hub for, as you say, whether it's CNH or basically, you know, Asia, kind of ex-Japan trading. Yeah, I absolutely think that Japan has now, and has been for quite some time, has become a regional center with its own currency pair. Um, yeah. And I think yeah, this move to an SG1 could accelerate that process. Because, I mean, yeah, obviously the data aspect of it is still very important around these primary venues, but it needs to be remembered that actually their, their volume numbers are going, uh, generally in decline, as a lot of the public platforms are. Um, this will come down to whether they get the buy side on board and maybe you know three or four more liquidity providers on board. That, I think, will be the key to it rather than the public platforms. But I do take, I, I would reiterate the point that I think there's a question around, um, you know, if CNH is EBS's biggest currency, then at some stage there probably will be a very good incentive there for EBS to move or to, sorry, locate at SG1. So we'll move on. Um, we've started publishing our videos from our interviews on the sidelines of the Chicago conference. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to sort of get your thoughts on the comments made by David Mercer in our video with the OMEX CEO. Um, I mean, obviously, yeah, rumours, yeah, we were getting rumours this week of another deal in this world, um, which we're pretty sure are wrong. But yeah, the fact is these things will keep on coming back. And he made the point around sort of data and trading as a, as a business model generally speaking that you know the mergers that were based around data are going to be a success mergers that are based around trading volumes are unlikely to be i kind of think it's a bit early days to be getting in you know before to, to make that sort of comment but what's your thoughts on it i mean well so okay so certainly it's early days with some of the mergers but i guess some of these mergers actually happened or the acquisitions rather happened a while ago um yeah I think I think it's maybe a little more nuanced than okay the data focused deals um, are good and the ones that aren't data focused uh, haven't been worthwhile. Um, just because I think I think data is one element, but part of it is that when you're looking at these bigger deals like CME and Next Group or the proposed LSE Refinitive Tie Up, right? It, yep. It's more that they have complementary businesses that tie into each other more readily. And when you look at some of the others, like Euronext and Fastmatch and CBOE and uh, Hotspot, right? Those still kind of remain as standalone products within the broader exchange group. 
but there's not, not something that necessarily latches on. Like LSE and, and Refinitiv, aside from the data, right, you're putting together like an OTC, uh, a big OTC FX platform and a clearinghouse that happens to, you know, mm-hmm. be clearing the most OTC FX volume right now. There's kind of an instant match there. And, you know, CME, you're putting together a firm that already has a massive uh, FX franchise on the future side with an OTC market, with, you know, Triana and, and lots of kind of various infrastructure pieces that could readily slot together. Um, I would say on the other side, for the ones that are kind of more standalone businesses, um, I would say, and this is kind of just my general sense, that the, the cross-selling opportunities maybe haven't been as big as some people hoped, kind of within the no. exchange client group. But to be honest, I feel like that's always the case. I feel like whenever I see presentations about, you know, when an acquisition has been done, they're always very um, optimistic in their assumptions about being able to cross-sell to different parts of the business. But I would say that there's there's definitely areas where being part of that exchange group can help the firm. And uh, to give an example, um, and this is actually made in a piece that we ran earlier this year from um, now Euronext FX, previously FastMatch, which was, you know, FastMatch was never really in the the market data game. Um, And, you know, now they've obviously kind of launched the tape, they're beginning to kind of sell it more, but that was never really their forte. By contrast, you know, Euronext, sells a ton of data so they have whole teams inside the exchange that have expertise in terms of you know how do we package this stuff how do we license it how do we sell it what should it look like what are the distribution channels they, they have this expertise that maybe your next uh, well legacy fast match didn't have in-house that they can now access to help them get into that business i mean you could argue that that's perhaps proving david's point about the monies in the data game not the uh, the transaction game mm. um, which i think i think is perhaps a, a more valid point. But I don't think it's I don't think it's quite as black and white in terms of saying what acquisitions have and haven't worked. No, and, and, and that's that's fine. I mean obviously and I guess you know, um we're trying to you know get our points across in a three minute video interview. Um so you've got to you've got to get to the point. The yeah. other new I think I'd put on it as well is that um some data's worth more than other data. Yeah. And I kind of look at it and go, well, if I'm just getting the same data being recycled, which a lot of it is, I mean, a lot of this price data that we get, you know, does come from one source originally, and it's just recycled through platforms, and these platforms sell sell the same data, and effectively you're not getting any, you know, sort of outliers in this data because it's pretty much the same trade just goes around the system. Um, you know, if the primary market gets given. Um, everybody updates their price, and, and a lot of the secondary venues get given. So, I, 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 I totally get your point around the nuance because I think it's. I would look at it and say, if you're a primary, if you bought a primary venue, then the data piece is very, very valuable, because as we've explained before on this podcast, you know the BIS data. Sorry, the BIS paper from two years ago now, when they said, look, the primary venues are being reduced in importance but their data is actually increasing in importance. So that will have more value. The other, the other part of it, though, is that if you're trying to sell your data on your traded volumes, so if you look at Euronext, you know, I mean, Euronext is doing a decent job, but they have to accept that there are 18 yards a day. Yeah. Now, the tape is obviously, a, you know, tape's going to be around 80 yards a day, and that's very, very different. But it comes down to how much of that data is really valuable to the LPs that's going to buy it, because... Yeah, you know, they're going to face more and more competition in this space. 
because you know every, everybody wants a data product, don't they? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, everybody's definitely excited by the the data element these days. And look, it, we yeah. talked about this before. It's not a surprise that when you know transaction revenues down, you know everybody's looking for data as as the new yeah. shiny revenue source. Um, it worries I, me that everyone goes the same way though, and you end up. With with too much data out there, and then people look at it, and you look at what's happening with LPs, with grams, with platforms. They look at it and go. At some stage, someone in the business runs a number and says, "Do we really need all this data?" And then they start they start trimming their data bills because you know we keep on getting told, as we've said on this podcast so many times, "Oh, data's never been cheaper." Well, fair enough, but on an individual basis, it's never been cheaper. If that's the case, then where is the value in the in a in the a exchange group, for instance, trying to build a business around data because it's never been cheaper. Clearly, their prices are going down. See, I, I'm not worried about too much data. Um, I, if, if it's not useful, people just won't buy it. I mean, I, I yeah. you know, we, we've done some uh, panel sessions lately and and at our various events in Scandinavia and Asia, and you know, I, you know, I put it. We had some data-focused panels where I kind of put it to people. You know, it's part of the problem that we're drowning in data and, and it's coming hard to sift through. Um, and while people agree that the challenge has come from, has moved from, you know, accessing the data to then actually, you know, passing through and finding something meaningful for it, meaningful in it all, um, no one seemed to think that the, that the flood of data out there was a particular problem at the moment. No, but my, my question to you stands, if I am an investor and I'm looking to invest in a business um, and my key selling point is data, and at the same time we're all hearing that data is becoming a very commoditized product, and you know it's never been cheaper. Where's my revenue stream going to come from for that business that I'm buying? If if it's going to get cheaper, you know, surely we look for growth in these things, don't we? And you know, if trading volumes aren't going up, then data won't go up. Um, yeah, and I agree. I think I think from an investor perspective, um, but I don't think I don't think that's a problem of too much data. I think that's just a problem of you know a platform trying to sell itself as a, yeah. as a data product yeah. when their data isn't isn't as valuable as they claim it is. Yeah. Do you think then that we are under and this can lead into a second video we posted this week? But do you think we underestimate the impact of the clearing piece on these deals? Um, in 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 what sense? In terms of we well, I mean, yeah, at the moment we we you know we we kind of like semi um, seriously joke about on a regular basis how we've been talking about clearing FX now for a decade and we're really only just limping you know from the from the launch pad from the start line aren't we in terms of getting yeah. it done? Um, but so is there a is a natural skepticism over clearing in FX? Meaning that we're kind of overlooking the potential value that um, you know an LCH, sorry, an LSE, and a CME can get from owning an OTC platform that may or may not, at some time in the you know, next couple of years, be doing a, a shed load more FX sort volume, for instance. I, you um, know, what, you know, I would actually say, would, NDS. yeah, I would say that actually um, the the groups that do have uh, a clearinghouse, so that would be Deutsche Börse. Um, CME and eventually um, LSE, I would say it probably does put them in, a, in quite a strong position. Um, 
I, you know, yeah, as you said, we've we've talked about um, clearing for a long time. I even, you know, this was kind of one of the questions that I put to uh, to Rick Schoenberg at uh, LCH in the video interview you're referring to. You know, the question I put to him was, you know, we've talked about it an awful lot. We've, you know, written many articles over the years predicting clearings just around the corner. Um, it hasn't happened, but now there does certainly seem to be something of a, a renewed push. Um, I think part of it is just. Uh, it just comes down to the economics, right? There was no regulatory mandate before, and then mm-hmm. there was very little uh, economic mandate to clear. I think now, with you know various capital requirements, with you know the uncleared margin rules. I mean, I don't think you know one of the, the questions we put to uh, to Rick in that interview was whether um, you know spot FX could ever go into clearing, um, and he you know points out that that look. LCH can and does clear, you know, a limited amount of spot, but really the the solution they have there isn't scalable right now. But he he kind of makes the point that with all the offboarding we've seen on FXTB, you know, people are are tired. We've seen rolling offboardings from various yeah. sides, right, over the past decade. Um, people are getting sick and tired of that. Essentially, they want to you know be able to to know you know know what their their model is for kind of accessing the market and trading in five, six years' time and not have to mm. worry about getting off board in the meantime. Um so he said people are looking at the alternative. Now I don't think I don't think spots headed that way anytime soon. But I think certainly the case on the non spot side becomes more compelling the more goes into clearing, right? So now right now you've got you know the interdealer it's still quite early in the journey because we've got so most of the interdealer NDF is now going in. We've got some a fair amount of client NDF dealer client NDF going in. Options is kind of just getting going. Um, it will really be if the forwards start going in there. Yep. That's when I think you'll kind of see the the tipping point in terms of FX clearing. And Galen, for the last ten years, I have been predicting every January increased clearing. For FX swap clearing is coming to a market near you, and like a stop <laughs> clock, one time I'll be right. I'll be right. Eventually, eventually you'll get it. Eventually, like, like your platform consolidations right. predictions. Yes, exactly, exactly. It's happening, baby. It's happening. <laughs> the um, another story that um, you posted this week kind of grabbed my attention. Um, and we're obviously getting towards the end of the podcast, so we're now into our cynical stage. But um, there's a code of conduct that's been launched, but not obviously for the FX market, but for the crypto market or dig- sorry, digital assets market, was it? Yes. So it's um, the, the Association for Digital Asset Markets, otherwise known as ADAM, um, has yep. published a code of conduct, which um, I mean, so so yeah. I mean, I I spoke to someone who's who's firm is part of that effort this week and to their credit they weren't really under any illusions about how difficult it's going to be um i think it, it was just interesting because you know talking to them i view everything through the prism of what i've seen with the fx code of conduct right yeah which was you know a, a big task you had to get a lot of different players around the, the table and then even even then you know you you publish something that was this is going to be principles based much like like the FX code is, and then you publish something, and then of course, you know, lots of people complain that actually, it the only kind of unclear or controversial bits it doesn't really give definitive answers on, and then even though lots of buy side were involved in the in the kind of the design of it, there hasn't been a huge buy side take up. Um, I mean, the crypto space faces 
much greater challenges than FX even did in getting this thing adopted. Um, you know, for example, you know, if you think FX is is fragmented, you know, crypto is mm-hmm. ten times so. So even though this has some big yeah. players um, attached to it, I mean, it's it's hard to get anything global going when there's so many small pockets of liquidity, so many um, different players in the like all participating in this market. Um, it's also the other big challenge is there's no central authority, at least. I know that the, the code isn't regulation, but at least central banks could kind of lean on market participants, right, and say this is how we think you and should they be do. behaving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they and they can make efforts. They're they're talking about it. You know, yeah. at the PNL conferences, we've had you know numerous um, central banks um, talking or regulators talking about you know how they approve of it and they think that this is a good thing and the industry yeah. should be following it. Crypto doesn't have anything even remotely resembling that central authority. So I think it's going to be very, very challenging for it to get any meaningful traction. That being said, look, it's not a bad thing, right? To, to publicly no. to publicly print something that, that can be used as kind of a blueprint, you know, that firms could at least look to and say, okay, this is, you know, this is how we, we should be behaving. Um, it's definitely a good thing. The fact that there's a group at all for, for regulators, for example, to be able to consult with and talk to and ask advice for, um, and, and even just to keep the dialogue flowing, right? You've got some of the big yeah. players in the industry saying, this is how we think the market should be you know, acting and behaving. And then regulators can kind of look at that and engage in a dialogue with them. So I, I definitely think it's it's a positive step. Will it make any difference in the in the near term? I... I'm not too sure. Mm. I mean, I don't know much about um, Adam as a group. Um, is it actually trading firms or is it platforms as well? So, for instance, are the exchanges, are they looking to get the exchanges onto it? And I guess the question I really want to ask is, you've got you know, ICE-backed, you've got CME. Are they part of this effort? Um, they actually aren't. That Those those major exchanges aren't part of the group yet. No. Um, it, it does have a wide mix of people on it, though. Yeah, so yeah. It does, it I, does I, have exchanges. I'm that because obviously they're, they're, re- they're very regulatory-focused businesses. And so, you know, I think sometimes, you know, you look at it and go, well, exactly how much do these firms want to sign up to a code of conduct and a set of principles when they exist in a highly regulated world? Yeah, I mean EBS. EBS has signed up to the FX Global Code. I'm not aware, and I'm happy to be corrected as always on this. I'm not aware that CME has. I hadn't thought of that, but but no, so the, the, it has a complete mix of, of you know custodians and trading firms and exchanges and pure tech firms. But the big exchange groups, the the kind of the quote unquote traditional uh, derivatives exchanges, are not part of the group. As of yet, yeah, yeah. I'm just going to quickly flick through and see if I can find get to the get to the C's in the thing. There's a lot of B's. I can tell you, there's a lot of B's <laughs> in there. Um, I've got to C's and I'm on page six, page fifteen. Sorry, yeah. Wow. Well, <laughs> that's a good sign that there's so many people signed up. Yeah, although it's, I think it's pretty steady at um, nine hundred and seventy-two or something like that. Yeah, no, there's no, there's no CME. Um, 
statement on the public registers, which doesn't mean to say they haven't got one. But again, I, I think that's the point I'm making about the crypto world is that, you know, does uh, do firms that obviously facilitate a lot of the trading actually need to sign up to this thing when, when they're a highly regulated um, structure anyway? Yeah, I think I think for, for something like that, it kind of becomes a moot point, right? Because yeah. everything's so codified. If I want to go and tra- trade on the CME, the you know the rule book is so explicit there in terms of what's allowed and not allowed that I don't think yeah. it's as as important. Um, so yeah, it's 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 a step in the right direction. Um, certainly, you know, if the the crypto space could certainly do with something like this, um, and it could certainly do with something like this getting adopted. Um, you know, whether it will make a difference just because, you know, if nothing else, right, there's so many, there's still so many kind of retail or retail size participants in this market that could still, you know, someone, someone with a good, you know, just one individual person with a good chunk of change could go and and move markets, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Um, Which makes it kind of harder to, to get that kind of broader adoption, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think, I mean, as you say, though, it's, it, it can't be a bad thing that people are looking to establish some sort of basis for behaviour and conduct in, in, in that market. It's just another small step on the road to trying to get it a little bit more mainstream and giving people more comfort that this is actually a genuine market that they can engage with, as opposed to, um, frankly, a Wild West. Yeah, I mean, we'll close out now, but I wanted to ask you one question. It's been, it's been a burning issue for me all week. Um, you published at the start of the week a story about um, Integral um, Development and Jeffries launching TrueFX. And it's horrible having the sort of memory I have sometimes because I'm sitting there like, I'm sure I've seen something like that before. And I went back to um, September 28, 2009. A story written by some local Colin Lambert that says, <laughs> integral, integral unveils true FX. <laughs> um, that was basically a push into the retail space. Um, yeah. It provided tick-by-tick historical real-time market data. Um, so we're back on the data thing to retail market participants. Um, and it's an aggregator. But um, what's different? Is this a relaunch? I mean, but 10 years Firstly, if you've, got, if, you've got, if you've got a good name, you don't let it go to waste, Colin. You know, that's actually just a simple answer, and that's a very good answer. I hadn't thought of that one. <laughs> I was too busy trying to overthink it, which is not something I'm accused of that regularly. <laughs> um, this is this is basically an attempt to get round. Uh, you know, we talked earlier about some of the the credit issues and the PB issues, right? Which is it's it's trying to get away around that and basically provide uh, you know a single point of kind of credit intermediation and technology integration. Basically, it's you know, Integral's providing the technology, Jeffrey's providing the credit intermediation FXPB services, and then the, the market makers providing the liquidity. And basically, you know, by by bringing this all together, you know, Jeffrey's is lowering the PB costs, um, Integral is not charging buy side, so that's lowering, supposedly, the technology cost. And then the theory is that the market makers themselves, because the PB costs are lower, in theory, uh, could or should pass on those savings to customers in terms of tight spreads. So the theory is it create by having this all together, it's lower cost all around. Yeah, and, it, and it's and the other thing I found interesting is not a formal entity. No, as you say, it's a coordinated effort, which is yeah, it's quite a different, a different approach to to this sort of thing, isn't it? Yeah, because I, I was I was asking kind of okay, so who who owns who owns this thing? Yeah, um, 
and and the response we got from uh, the the interview with uh, Harpal Sandhu from Integrals Online, um, the the response was that that it's less of a of an actual uh, entity and more of kind of a, yeah. an association between these three different kind of groups. Yeah. Um, to lose. To, yeah. 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 Well, there you go. I still prefer the idea that you don't lose a good name. <laughs> That's because I'm a simple man, as everyone knows. Um, that is going to be it for this week from us. Um, we'll be back next week. Feedback, um, as we said, as we say most weeks, is always welcome. And our thanks to our feedback from um, our listeners from last week. We'll be back next week. And in the meantime, uh, have a good week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>